Hi, I'm Don Mackey, welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting-edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org. Hello, this is Don Mackey with E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, and today our podcast is focusing on economic gardening. I'm delighted to have as our guest, Chris Gibbons, I think it's fair to say founder and inspiration behind economic gardening. Chris has been clearly an inspiration to us and a teacher. And so, Chris, I'm delighted to have you with us today. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for making time. I know you're busy. So let's just jump in as our time together will go fast. You grew up in Wakita, Oklahoma, which is wheat farming community. I grew up in Ogallala, so kind of in the same high plains part of the Great Plains. And you ultimately created this, what I would call an entrepreneurship movement, economic gardening. But I think it'd be useful for our listeners for you to share a bit of your life story and how you became so committed to entrepreneurship and economic gardening. Yeah, I'm happy to. Wakita is a little town of 500 people. I was part of the original baby boom. I, you know, initially it was my dad was in the Navy, South Pacific, came home, and it was just there's all these kids running around when I was growing up. And, you know, the town was a full service town. I mean, we had everything from grocery stores and mortuaries and banks and auto places. You know, it was a fully functioning town. I left there after I graduated from high school, went to University of Oklahoma. I would come back on occasions, but somewhere along that line, those stores started failing. And we moved out to Los Angeles for a little while, and I didn't get home very much. And at one point, it just dawned on me, my hometown was dying. And I never could under quite understand why. It was sort of like all those years, you know, I'd been there for 100 years, and things had been great, and there were people there, and there was farms all over. And that kind of has stayed with me all my life. I always say it doesn't hurt anymore, but it's a scar in my life. And that scar has never gone away. And so I've always had this, why did that happen? And as I went out, I actually got a master's degree in urban planning, but I still had this economic development side to me trying to understand that because as I moved around the country and eventually ended up in Colorado, spent most of my adult life here, I kept seeing other towns that were dying too. Both of us living on those Great Plains know Waukesha is not the only town dying there. And I work a lot in the upper Midwest. There's a lot of towns dying there. And, and you know, it's happening all over the country. So it was that motivation that's been driving me all these years is try to save my hometown. I didn't save my hometown. It's down to 200 people and it, it will not survive. But the idea behind it, why do towns die? Why do towns grow? Why do they thrive? That's what's been driving me all these years. Yeah, you and I kind of share that because my 
childhood hometown was Mullen, Nebraska, population 500. It's kind of stabilized, but Main Street is largely empty today because all of my family were in retail and service businesses on Main Street, and they're all gone, and most of those businesses are gone. So I hear what you're saying. So as we kind of think about, you know, according to the history of economic gardening, I did a little bit of updating as we were working on the paper that we're producing as part of this podcast with you. You know, it seems to me there's kind of a couple of routes to economic gardening. One is the naming of the concept by Phil Burgess with the Center for the New West in Denver. You reference that in your writing, in your book. And second, of course, your pioneering work in Littleton, Colorado. So talk a little bit about the innovative times in Littleton and how that work ultimately led into this international movement of economic gardening. Happy to, but there's another community in there that's probably part of the story in Sledville, Colorado, because that's when I first got this idea. I was a consultant. I was 29 years old. What makes you think that you know enough to be a consultant? But I was. I was making a living, working up there. Leadville's at 10,000 feet, if you've never been there, up in the Rocky Mountains. And they hired me. The molybdenum mine went down. They had about 30% unemployment. So they wanted to, you know, create jobs. I'm up there trying to recruit companies into Leadville. And it's winter, 10 months out of the year up there, not to mention hard to breathe. But I, I met these two miners that had invented a resin bolt that holds the mats up in the top of the mine to keep the mine from collapsing. And resin bolts are stronger because they're liquid and then they harden. So they have full contact. And I got to thinking about instead of trying to recruit people into Leadville, what if we just started working with these little local companies like that? And I never really got very far in Leadville with that, but it was the first time that idea occurred to me. Well, by the time I got to Littleton, Colorado, so this is 1987, they hired me. This is when, you know, the USSR is collapsing, the Berlin Wall comes down. There was all of this talk about there's going to be a peace dividend in the country. All this money we'd been spending in war, we're going to be able to spend on our country. Well, Littleton was in the war business. <laughs> the biggest employer was Martin Marietta. That's Lockheed Martin today. And they build missiles just outside the city limits there in Littleton. Littleton's a south suburb of Denver, if you've never been in Colorado. And so they had laid off about 7,500 people out of 15,000 employees. And then they hired me and they didn't tell me any of this when I started the job. <laughs> so. We were sitting around and trying to think about it. Okay, how are we going to approach this? You know, who are we going to recruit back in town and that sort of thing? And council, that council in 1987 gave us a real simple direction. They said, as good as employer as Martin Marietta was, they're still based in Bethesda, Maryland. And we were 1,500 miles from them. And they were good corporate citizens, but they were running our economy. We were up and down, depending upon what Martin did. They said, we want you to work with local companies and create good jobs. We don't want hamburger flipping jobs. We want good jobs. That's the only direction we ever got. And my boss, who's Jim Woods and happened to be city manager at the time, and I had pretty much the same interests. We both were interested in economics. We were interested in economic development. We were interested in entrepreneurs. And we just started kicking around ideas about how we're going to do this. And that's when we started to settle in on the idea of maybe we could grow our own. I, I threw it out to Jim Woods. I said, hey, I was thinking about this idea up in Leadville. 
we went to a presentation by a guy by the name of Phil Burgess. Phil Burgess and Kent Briggs were at the Center for the New West at the time. And Phil's talking about the economic development world chases, you know, you go out to other communities and try to bring them to yours. It's kind of a version of economic hunting, if you will. And he said, what communities really ought to do is stay home, you know, tend to your business. It's more about taking care of the companies you have there, get them to grow, water, feed, fertilizer, all those sort of garden techniques. And he said, you got to get out of the economic hunting business and get into the economic gardening business. So Phil was the one that named that. But Jim and I came back and we said, man, I went up to Jim and I said, Jim, he's talking exactly about what we talk. So we went down to Phil's, made appointment within a day or so, had an hour-long conversation, and we struck a deal right then and there that we would be a test case for Phil's ideas if they would introduce us to some of these high-powered people around the country. And it took off from there, and we've never looked back. They carried out their part in spades. They introduced us to really high-powered people, one of them being Paul Romer. Paul Romer, as you may know, won the Nobel Prize in economics a year ago. Paul happened to be the son of our governor, Roy Romer, but he was out at Stanford at the time. But we got time to talk with Paul, and we started getting all of these really high-powered ideas of these really great thinkers around the country, guys from MIT and Harvard and Stanford, and they were starting to influence the way we were thinking. And so we started building this idea of working with these local companies, and we found out two things really quickly. One is most companies are local, whether you do anything about it or not. Most jobs are created local. In every state, it's 80% or better. In a lot of states, it's 90%. And so that really hit us. And it's like, wow, job production really is local, whether we do anything about it, but can we improve that? So we took that idea and we stumbled on this other fact that the real stars were these stage two companies. And stage two to us was 10 to 100 employees one to 50 million in sales. They were beyond the survival stage and they were starting to grow and starting to scale, but they didn't have all the sophisticated tools that the large corporate enterprise folks had. And so we started bringing all these tools to them. Let me give you a stat around that. Those stage two companies are 15% of the total by and large in most communities, and they produce roughly around 40% of the jobs in any given community. So you have that 15-40 ratio that was holding up. And it was like, wow, that's a lot of bang for the bucks. So we started pouring resources into that targeted group because you know they could make things grow. But as we went along, we found all these really great tools, database research, commercial database services, GIS mapping capabilities, digital marketing. And we're bringing all these tools to help these people. But in those early days, there wasn't very much growth. We were going, what's the deal here? We're bringing these high-level corporate tools down to these guys. That's when we started discovering, we called them root problems initially, but there were at least five areas that if you didn't get those root problems solved, it wasn't going to make a whole lot of difference about bringing these tools to them. So over the years, those five root problems, we've called them five frameworks now, but they're ways of thinking about it. In addition to all of this, there's another part to the story, and that is 
we got introduced to this idea. It's called complex adaptive systems or complexity. And it was down at the Santa Fe Institute down in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so these were the guys who were saying, you know what? There's two systems that are operating. There's mechanical systems where the same input through the same process gets you the same output. And it's like math. One plus one gets you two every time. Never going to change. It's the end of the world. But there's another system out there that that's not true. And that happened to be biological systems. So this is people, this is economies, this is money, this is companies, this is markets. And they started telling us how that stuff worked. And boy, did that open our eyes. And we said, man, that's just exactly what we're running into when we're trying to build this program out there. So these guys at the Santa Fe Institute, they came from Los Alamos. If you've ever been in Santa Fe, Los Alamos is where the A-bomb was invented. So these are the A-bomb guys that thought this up. And they're a lot smarter than Jim and I were, but man, were we taking notes furiously at the time. So we brought all of that complexity stuff into it. And that gets a little bit nerdy, but there's some real basic things that we found out that they're working. One of them is that, biological systems tend to collapse for no reason out of the blue. And we're going, are you sure about that? And then they go, go take a look at the stock market. Go take a look at the economy. Go take a look. They were pointing out all these biological places where things were going along really nicely. And then all of a sudden the bottom fell out. And we're going, well, that sounds like what we're seeing all the time. So it was a nice little rule. And they give us this rule around mechanical versus biological systems. Business is both of those. It's got mechanical systems and accounting, the engineering portion of it, all those machines out there in the shop. But it also has got this biological side, your employees, your managers, your customers, everything about markets over here. So the key to it that really helped us is to figure out there was different rule sets depending on which one of those systems you were in. And that cleared up a bunch of things that really helped us to all of a sudden start helping companies grow because we were making their sales happen. So let me stop there. I'm kind of rambling. No, 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 this is great. And I think we kind of got into what this is and you're learning about how to bring it to life that it makes a difference in entrepreneurial ventures. I think one of the things that you've done exceptionally well is not only in your Littleton work, but now in your national work, capturing short stories and testimonials and impact information. And at E2, we think that's really important because we have to demonstrate our value and those stories and numbers make a difference. I know on my first trip to Littleton, you were gracious enough to host us and learn about economic gardening. And during that trip, you shared some stories. But so, Chris, tell me about the story of the dogs that are used to sniff bombs, because it's just a fascinating application of economic gardening. Yeah, it really is. The company we worked for did DNA work, and they were raising these dogs that could smell bombs, but they didn't want sharp-eared dogs. So this is like a German shepherd. German shepherds walking through an airport sniffing on people make people very nervous, have that same dog be a beagle that's a floppier dog or other kinds of dogs. And, you know, people want to pet it. They don't want them petting those dogs, but they certainly don't make them nervous. And so they wanted to know where that market for those floppy eared bomb sniffing dogs was. And we did a lot of work around that. And as it turns out, 
as it is with a lot of industries, it's concentrated and it's actually concentrated around San Antonio, Texas. And we were able to use these network maps to show that all these people had some kind of connection down to San Antonio. And maybe because of the military bases down there, I never was exactly sure why that's the case. But we actually found a national market, 6,000 dogs a year, because those dogs have about a three-year life cycle that they can actually use them in bomb sniffing. That said, don't spend your time doing marketing up in Minnesota or Boston. You got to get down to Texas. You got to get to San Antonio because that's the center of the world for floppy ear bomb sniffing dogs. If you didn't have the tools we had, the sophistication of finding those markets, finding those connections, finding those exact contacts of people who were buying that, they would have taken a long, long time to get to the same place that we got to. So when we talk about acceleration, that's what we're doing. They would have gotten there sooner or later. But, you know, they're not in the business that we are. They don't know those sources. They don't. We have a subscription to 100 different commercial database services. They can't afford that. Those things cost three, four thousand dollars per subscription. And they're highly, highly specific. You can go do Google searches, but you're going to get 100,000 searches with a lot of noise in there. When we do searches, we're about 98 percent on target. So that was a, a company that we did work for that it's fun seeing that industry even exists to start with, but even better is to get them focused so they weren't going to be wasting their marketing and sales efforts. Yeah. Well, and to your point, they might have got there, they probably would have got there, but we know the longer it takes to get to the market that you want to be in, there's always that risk that it's going to adversely affect your venture and its development. Yeah, time is money, and, and those markets are changing, and they, they're moving pretty fast in this day and Absolutely. age. Absolutely. Now, you said you had a quick story from Kansas. So if that's on one end, and, and actually the comparison I was going to make with the atomic manufacturers down in Texas, in Kansas, the woman made porch banners. It doesn't get much simpler than this. So you've probably seen them. Sometimes they're American flags. They have flowers on them, all sorts of things. And you would think that, okay, is this going to be a business and industry that's driving the economy in this little town that she was in in Kansas? As it turns out, we got a, a data file of all our existing customers, plotted that on a GIS map. We could see it scattered all over the country, but we could see it concentrated in these certain areas. And we have the ability to go into those neighborhoods and say, what's that neighborhood about? We have lifestyles and we have census information and demographic information and consumer sales information. We can tell you how much ketchup is sold in the neighborhood next to you if you want to know that. It's all data and it's all for sale. In her particular case, there were about four or five different specific lifestyles out of 65 possible lifestyles that, that we use that said, we buy these banners. And so we went back out all across the country and said, find out other communities, other cities, other small towns where that lifestyle exists and go sell in those places. Those are the people that are going to be high probability sales. For whatever reason, the kind of lifestyle that it was is that it was consistent across the country. And the only thing she didn't know is where they were. And, you know, that's fairly easy for us to do. I say easy if you got a lot of money to buy all of the software pieces. 
But that's four or five hours worth of work for us that all of a sudden just exploded her market. And she, I can't remember how many people she added almost immediately. It was like four or five, six people just, just within the month or two months out there simply because we found those bigger markets for her because she could have never had that kind of sophisticated tool running a little small business. So on one end, you got atomic manufacturing down in Texas. On the other end, you got porch banners in Kansas. But we work with all those people because she was bringing money into her community. She was selling to external markets, which is what you want to do in economic development. Well, I think it's a particularly powerful model. And I've used this story in my own work. And to this day, if you go to Marysville, Kansas, you're going to find the Porch Swing, which is a retail store that's gifts and flowers and that kind of stuff that is meeting the needs of the community of Marysville. But then, yeah, she's got this very substantial e-commerce business. And we think that's a particularly important kind of venture model in rural America where you're maintaining that main street, but at the same time, she probably couldn't survive just on that retail business, but with this e-commerce business, it changes the economics of the overall undertaking. And it fits that community. You know, I think there's a tendency in rural communities, like I grew up, as I said, in a town of 500 people, is to think, we can't do that. You know, that's big city stuff. But all we're doing is bringing the tools. She didn't have to have a really sophisticated product. She just had to have something that people were buying all over the country and bringing money into town. It was helping her. It was helping the community. And that's exactly what entrepreneurship in rural communities is about. That's how you change the course of the Waukegas of the world. The town I grew up in is they sold wheat. It was a wheat farming town. And wheat is a commodity. And, you know, with commodities, it's always the lowest price is going to win. It's the Walmart game. And so you're always driving down expenses. And a lot of times expenses are wages. It's your labor force. And so if you just look at the logic of that, it's like it's got to get worse for it to stay alive. And it's like that makes no sense. You need to be selling something that you got high margins so that you can pay good wages. You can bring money into town. You can survive and stay because in a wheat farming town, the farmer slowly got driven off the land. And where there used to be a farm every quarter section when I was growing up, I'd drive up that road where I used to live, and there's nobody that lives at all up there anymore. You can drive eight miles up into Kansas, and there's nobody left on that road. And that's what happens in my mind in rural communities, particularly around natural resources. If you're selling commodities to the world, you're just going to have this constant pressure to drive out costs, and that means driving out labor and, and people. And so you back up, you know, the turn of the 19th century, you might have had 10, 15 people working on those threshing crews. One guy in a combine can cover more ground in a day than that threshing crew could cover all summer long. That's what's going on. That's why my town died. That's what I finally figured out. It was that commoditization pressure that was driving out labor and driving out costs, which you'd like to have lower cost things, but somebody's taking the burden of that. Somebody is not working anymore. I don't know where that threshing crew went, but they're not out there on the farms anymore. No, exactly. And automation has hit natural resource industries throughout America. It's impacted manufacturing, all the mainstays of rural economies. And so, it's a powerful force, and what you're talking about is a way to counteract that and create genuine but better economic activity. 
Hey, Chris, we're going to have to wrap up. As I said, this goes so fast. But before I let you go, I know you've produced a book. There's a website about the National Center that does this work. Share a little bit about some of the resources. Anne will put this on the landing page for the podcast, but give us just a quick promo of some of these resources. Sure. They're on the website, economicgardening.org, O-R-G. And there's a place on there, as I mentioned, there's a little, as you mentioned, there's a hundred page book in there that kind of talks in more detail about what I've talked about today. There's a place that's a free webinar. We used to do those quarterly. We just decided to move them over to the website. If you're interested in certification and economic gardening, there's a place to sign up. We do that online now. COVID forced us to do that. There's testimonials and outcomes. You can see, we always talk about stats and stories, and you'll see the stats of the growth rates, and you'll see the stories of what the CEOs say. They're pretty candid comments, including some poor writing skills sometimes. There's sample deliverables. That's the shortest way to just go in there and say, well, what am I getting in this program? And it's like, it's a little short. You can get these kinds of maps. You can get these kinds of digital marketing, research reports, et cetera. And then there's a list of all the national awards and citations that the program has gotten over the years. So there's a lot of stuff on that little website. Yeah, absolutely. And as you know, I've been spending quite a bit of time on it as I've worked with you on a little bit of a paper for our readers that goes along with this podcast. Uh, Well, Chris, just thanks so much for making time out of your busy schedule for uh, joining us today. Thank you for having me, Don. Good to see you again. You bet. Hey, folks, thanks for joining us once again for Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Just to remind you that at E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, your best resource, like Chris's website, is our website, energizingentrepreneurs.org. There you can find a wide range of free resources. You can join our E2 National Practitioners Network, which can get you all of our entrepreneurial ecosystem building tools that are now in the public domain. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's easy to sign up, but it's also easy to unsubscribe if you don't want to continue receiving it. And of course, you can sign up on your favorite platform for the podcast. Specific to this podcast, we have been working with Chris on kind of an overview paper around economic gardening, how it fits into rural entrepreneurial ecosystem building, and we hope you'll find that helpful as well. So remember, continue to do the good work of building rural communities in your part of America. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast.